There we go. I think Bear's got a future as an MC or uh, maybe infomercial announcer in front of him. This guy's good. Did you know announcements were more fun today than they have been? I don't know, ever. So, um, thanks, Bear. Uh, Guys, if you're new here, my name is Skeet. I'm the senior pastor, and it's my pleasure today to open up God's Word with you as we look into the Scriptures. You know, uh, we began uh, last week this series as we go through the Christmas season entitled The Thrill of Hope. And you saw we got that line from the old song that we've sung so many times. And and we're getting to sing it anew with new verses each week to kind of key in on the things that we look forward to. Because more than anything else to me, Christmas is a season of anticipation. It's a time of year when there are just things naturally coming that we look forward to. Whether it's the gathering of family or a Christmas party at work. Or, or cake balls with Oreos in the middle. Whatever it is, there's things we look forward to. One of the things that's kind of a mixed bag for me is that I, I don't like shopping for gifts. I don't. Um, and so it's confession time here. I'm not surprisingly good at it either. Um, I try, and, and it's a frustrating thing because I have one gift that I'm responsible for in our home. My wife takes care of everything else. And so we have five children. Uh, We have total on both sides, 11 nieces and nephews. We've got grandparents, parents, siblings. There's a lot of people that require gifts. Some friends that we like to get gifts for, etc. And Leisha does a really good job of taking care of all of them and leaving one gift for me to buy. And that's the gift that I give her. Now... I dread that shopping process, not because I don't want to give things to Leisha. I like giving things to her. In fact, I believe my excessive generosity is the reason that gift buying is so difficult. Because any time Leisha says to me, Skeet, I'd like to get that, I'd like to say yes to that. And so I like to say, what do you get the woman who has everything? That's not exactly accurate, but I'm not good at it, and I'm kind of... So here's what happens is I get a gift in my mind and I get excited about giving it. And then the second guesses start. So I'll give you an example. Uh, One of the things, Leisha's very talented artistically. So one of the things that I wanted to get her this year uh, was a nail gun because that's useful. And so I found a good one. It doesn't require an air compressor. It's battery operated. And so I said, oh, this is going to be great. Uh, But then I think, by God's grace, I realized that wasn't the best thing. And so I just said, Leisha, I was going to get you this for Christmas, but I don't think that's a good idea. Do you like it? She said, oh, that'd be nice. So so I went ahead and ordered it because now the gift is gone. But I've got something, and I'm excited about it. I'm I'm really excited about it. And, and, And more than anything, I'm anticipating, right, getting to see her open it. And we've got some things we've picked out for the kids. And so I'm anticipating getting to see their joy when they receive this gift. And I think you guys can resonate with that, that there's this sense during Christmas time that there's something to look forward to. And we know that. And looking backwards to the birth of this baby more than 2,000 years ago is a reminder of some central important truths to give us hope. An anticipation far beyond the next party or the gift that we give. Something bigger, something greater, something deeper. We talked last week about how Christmas is ultimately the celebration of the simple fact that God is with us because God is for us. 
That God has come in human form and He's come to us because of His affection for us. That while we ran from God, while we sinned and struggled, God, instead of pressing us away from Him, He drew near to us in love. Today I want to talk more in depth about what Jesus has come to do for us. When we talk about the coming of Christ, we're talking about the coming of the one the Bible calls the Savior. And I want to key in on that phrase and the meaning of it this morning. You see, when the angel comes to Mary in Matthew 1 and proclaims that a son will be born to her in verse 21, he says, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so the angel proclaims to Jesus' parents that he will be a savior and that he will save his people from their sins. And then when Jesus is born and the, the angels fill the night sky and they sing the song of hope and peace to the shepherds, their proclamation it to them is unto you who is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That the announcements of Jesus' birth were not just the announcements of the birth of any child, but the birth of one who would save a Savior. And in John chapter 3, verse 17, the Bible tells us this. After what is arguably the most memorable verse in the New Testament, it says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. So we begin to just kind of jump into the gospel stories. We see early on this consistent theme of who Jesus is, which is telling us what He is to do for us. Jesus is Savior. That's why He's come. He's come to save us. Better put, He has come to rescue us. That's the story of Christmas. Is that God has come to us to come to our rescue. Now the question we've got to begin to ask is to rescue us from what? I mean, what what do we need to be saved from? And this is where I think we've got to step back and let the Scripture speak to us. And what you've already seen in the text that we've read is that He's come to save His people from their sin. And what John 3 told us, it's the condemnation that they're under because of their sin. Is that all of humanity lives under God's righteous judgment for our sin. And Jesus has come to rescue us from sin. Jesus has not come to save us from a relatively mediocre life or a disappointing marriage. Jesus has not come to save you from a a, a poor career. Jesus has words to say to you about that. But the salvation that Jesus offers you is deeper than these smaller things of living a life that's somewhat disappointing. He has come to rescue you from something much more significant. It's come to rescue us from our sin and the carnage that it has caused in this world and our own homes. And there are three ways, historically, theologians have described the way Jesus has come to save us from our sin. And I want to go through them this morning with you because Christ has come to save us. And so we've got to understand what he's going to do. And the first thing that Jesus will do for us is save us from the penalty of our sin. Jesus saves us from the penalty that we incurred due to our sin. What we mean by this is that God righteously looked upon us in our sinful condition and we're deserving of His judgment. 
The Bible depicts God as this judge who rules over all the world and who does it in perfect justice. Now, when we say God rules in justice, what we mean by that is that there are appropriate punishments and rewards given to particular activities. That's what justice is. It is giving one their due. The Bible depicts God as a righteous and just judge. And I want you to look to Romans chapter 6, 23. If you grew up in church, this verse may be very familiar to you, but it communicates very simply and very directly the penalty for our sin. And it says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have... Two manners described here of receiving something. One is what's called wages or earnings and the other is a gift. The Bible is abundantly clear that that all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so every one of us has sinned against a righteous and holy God. And because of that, we're deserving of a just penalty. And the Bible says that that penalty, the wages, what has been earned in our sinful activity, in our sinful hearts, in our rebellious disposition towards God, in our unbelief towards Him and His Word, that what we have earned, our wages, are death. When we talk about wages, what we're talking about is something that is due me because of what I have done. And so if I go to work each week, I've made a deal with my employer that I'll be paid X at the completion of that week, or if it's a two week or a monthly period, but whatever it is, there's an agreed upon compensation for behavior. The boss expects you to show up at at 7 a.m. or at 8 a.m. They expect you to do X until lunchtime and take a break. And then you come back and you work until 5 if you're lucky. If you did what I did when I was in the corporate world, uh, no one tracked any of that. No one cared when you went to work. No one cared about anything except one number. What did you sell at the end of the month? What did you do? And if the number was good enough, you got to keep your job and live to fight another day. And if it wasn't good enough, you had a 90-day lease on life and we'd cut you loose. That's how the world worked where I lived. But there was an agreed compensation. So every year, allegedly, at the beginning of the year, we'd get a compensation plan. But it was really more like March or May. And uh, you'd find out what they were going to pay you. And so here's what you do. You'd begin to sort through. If I sell this, I make this. And you, you try to figure out what do I need to do to bring in what I need to do to provide for my family. And there's a compensation schedule, right? That's how wages work. Whether it's hourly, whether you have a salary, whether you're driven by commission, there's a schedule, there's an agreed upon payment. And the Bible says the only right and fair payment for sin. The only wages is death. That is what in our sin we have earned. That's what's due us. And some of us will, will kind of quibble at that and we'll begin to say, well, well some people have sinned like, like really big and, and my sin seems comparatively small. I mean, I'm not Jeffrey Dahmer. Did you notice any time we describe how sinful we are, there's like five guys in the history of the world we all compare ourselves to. We throw out some, some mass murder, we'll throw out Hitler, uh, maybe Mao Zedong or, or Stalin, right? There's a short list and we're never on it because that makes it convenient, right? So if I get the five most grotesque wicked men in the history of the world and compare myself, I'm going to go home feeling really good. 
The problem is that's not the standard that God's using. See, no one gets to stand before a judge in court and say, yeah, I broke these laws, but but the other guy did more. See, that doesn't make you more or less guilty. It, It just makes that other person guilty too. Some of us will, will wrestle with the, 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 the significance of our offense before God. And we'll fail to understand a, a basic element of how the legal and judicial system operates. You see, take something as simple as lying. When a small child lies to his mother or father, we don't usually put him in jail. Not right away. Our goal is to correct that before it leads to a life of crime that gets them there. And so what we might do is is we might put them in time out. We might discipline them. We we might take something away from them that they like. We might put in cameras to watch them so we know if they're telling the truth or not. But we don't take the most significant action and lock the kid away for life. We address this what in a sociological perspective is a very small infraction in a smaller way. Now, as as kids get older and they move out of our house, they begin to walk into different relationships. And, and so while the, the, the penalty for lying to your mother and father may be relatively small and, and not all that painful in the grand scheme of things, uh, lying to your boss at work could get you fired. That's more painful. And lying to federal prosecutors will get you in jail. Just ask Martha Stewart how that works. It's the same infraction. I want you to notice that. Lying to mom and dad, lying to the employer, lying to a federal prosecutor. And yet they carry three very different penalties. Ranging from time out, sitting in the corner for a few minutes, to a few years in a federal prison. Now, what's the difference? It's all lying, isn't it? The difference is who has been offended. Not what has been done. So lying to mom and dad carries a different weight than lying to your boss, which carries a different weight than lying to a federal prosecutor. It's the same offense, but a person worthy and deserving in our culture of a different form of honor. More honor must be given to the judge and the federal prosecutor legally than must be given to mom and dad. And what I want you to see here is that the dishonor of someone in lying to them and the due penalty is directly connected to their rightful demand of honor. And so when we offend God, God who is infinitely good, infinitely glorious, we have incurred infinite judgment because we have sinned against one who is rightly deserving of all honor and praise. There's no small sins in that perspective when it comes to God. Because every one of them is nothing more than an act of infinite cosmic treason. And it says the wages of sin is death. And every one of us stands under judgment because of our sin. That's where the story begins. But the verse finishes with this, with this hopeful promise that the gift of God, not something that's earned, something that's simply freely given to be received and enjoyed, is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Daniel chapter 2 goes on beyond just describing it as death and says that it's incurring eternal contempt. Everlasting death. Death without ever having the satisfaction of rest in dying. 
ongoing, continual separation from God and suffering because of it. And so the question for us, if that's where we stand, is is how do we get this free gift and how is it made available to us? If we have this penalty and judgment hanging over us, how do we get forgiven? First John describes the manner in which Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. It says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And so I want you to see what goes on here. We begin with the statement that God dearly loves us. Because of that, we celebrate Christmas where He sent His Son to us. And the big question is, what's He going to do For us, And we get this lengthy theological word propitiation that shows up a few times in the Bible and probably nowhere else in the English language. And it's a word picture about God's wrath for sin being absorbed. Jonathan Edwards said said we should depict this word in these ways is that is that God has these floodgates. And and that as a righteous judge, he sees sin and the injustice in our hearts and in this world. And God can't help but but be angry by it. Why? Because God is loving. And because what what God loves has been harmed, defaced, and threatened. God's angry. In the same way that, that while being a relatively nice guy, if someone breaks into my home to threaten my family, that love is going to automatically switch to wrath. Not because I'm mean and angry, but because I am loving. That if someone broke into my home to, to murder and maim my family, there's going to be massive amounts of hot lead flying in their direction until I run out and reload and start again. But not because I'm mean, but because I am loving and I dearly love my wife and children. So I'm going to do everything I can to protect and defend them. And what anyone loves when it is threatened, defaced and defamed, wrath is the appropriate response. And so God sees sin and his wrath is building. And Edward said it's just floodgate and he's just he's holding it back. And it just piles up. And in a moment. He opened And the flood and torrent of God's wrath rushed out towards humanity. And propitiation means that Jesus, he he saw us here and he stepped in front. And the full brunt of it hit him and he absorbed it. He absorbed it for us. So when the Bible says that, that he was propitiation, it means that God's righteous anger for sin that we had committed was poured out. And Jesus stood there and he took it. Because He loved us. And in that way, we're saved from the penalty of sin. That's what we celebrate Christmas. He's our Savior. And that when you look to the cross and you see the the wrath of God and the ugliness of sin so visibly, you note that we deserved that. And Jesus took it in what we received as adoption as sons. Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. But he doesn't, as if that weren't good enough, he doesn't stop there. The Bible says that Jesus has come to rescue us from the power of sin. You see, you and I, if we've trusted in Jesus, we stand forgiven. Because of what he's done for us. 
But we weren't immediately transformed at that moment to where we never desired to sin again. That it still had a bit of a a hold on us. And Jesus has come to rescue us, not only from the judgment, but from its power over our lives. Continue with me in Romans chapter 6. Verse 12. Let sin, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from the death to life, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. I want you to see what's going on here. He's saying, look, don't let sin reign in your bodies anymore. Because what God is doing in you is setting you free from slavery to sin and its passions. You're you're getting liberated gradually over time. You're getting set free. And sin will have no dominion on you. You see, what happens here is that at the moment we believe in Jesus, that he's the only son of God who died for our sins and rose again, the spirit of God takes up residence in us and he begins to work in us to change our hearts in this beautiful way that the sin that once entangled us now seems undesirable and grotesque to us. That's the work of the spirit of God. We begin to get new passions, right? a passion to understand God and his word, to pray, to walk with him and his people. All of a sudden we get what, what Jeremiah called a new heart. And the promise is that God's going to write His Word on our hearts. And He's doing that gradually by the work of His Spirit, setting us free from the power of sin. And Jesus has come to save us from that. This is what the theological term is sanctification. That we're being transformed over time into the image of Christ. And this is a cooperative process where we trust in Jesus. And we apply the truth of the gospel to our hearts. And and God begins to renew our minds and the way we think about things. Sometimes we don't experience this just because we're clouded by our day-to-day living. Sometimes we we just see our continued struggle with what seems to be the same thing and we don't realize that in God's grace the battle lines have shifted as His Spirit has won the victory for us. God's been good to us. I think this is one of the reasons it's so important to be a part of some kind of a small group, whether it's a men's Bible study, a women's Bible study, one of our, our life groups that meets off campus, is because when people get to gather around you and they begin to know you, they see sometimes more clearly than you do the work of the Spirit of God in you. Where you might struggle to say, have I come anywhere? Have I, have I made any progress? I, I feel like I just keep fighting and losing. Is that they can come along beside you and they can see. They can see the hand of God in your life and encourage you. But Jesus has made this promise to us And to the church in Thessalonica, Paul says, He will sanctify you, mind, body, and spirit. God is faithful and He'll do this. It's a promise. And in Romans 7, Paul describes this inward struggle where he says, Man, the sin that I don't want to do, I just keep doing. And the, the righteous thing that I'd like to do, I keep not doing. And, and he, he, you can just see this frustration welling up. And he says, who will save me? And then he says, praise Jesus. 
Think about that. Who's going to save me from the ongoing, enduring power of sin? And the answer is Christ. That there is hope this morning, whatever sin you've struggled with, whatever cycle of addiction you've wrestled with, that Jesus has come not only to set you free from its judgment, but to set you free from its power over your life, that you would walk in victory. Jesus has come to rescue you from the power of sin. And if, if that weren't good enough, it's free shipping, because I want you to hear the rest of the story. He says, I've come to save you from the presence of sin. So so Jesus has saved us from the penalty of sin. He is saving us from the power of sin. And He will save us from the very presence of sin. And this is one of the things that that, that maybe is harder for us to grasp. We'd like to try to make as simple as possible. Is that we all walk around every day amidst the carnage of sin. We, we see it in our own kind of hearts with baggage we carry from things that we've done or that have been done to us by other people. We see it just more broadly in our culture. I think it's been brought to a head as the, the question of race has been brought up over and over again. And we have to stare at the ugly history of America and not just America, plenty of other places and begin to ask, how do we move forward? We can see the carnage of sin all around us. We, we can see it when we realize that, that tonight 40% of the children in America will sleep in a home that their father does not live in. That, that around the world, there are thousands upon thousands of children who do not have clean drinking water. This, this just obviously isn't how God designed it. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so we live in the constant recognition, if we'll look just a little bit, that sin is present and wreaking havoc. And the promise of Jesus is that at His return, everything will be made new. Should you look with me in Revelation 21? I'm one of those guys, I want to know how the story ends. Because then you know whether or not the book's worth reading. And I'm going to tell you, this one is worth it. In Revelation 21, we have the story of Jesus coming back to earth. And in verses 2 through 4, he depicts just a snapshot of this reality. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Is it at Jesus coming? There'll be the end of all abuse, sickness, injustice. One of the days that I long for is to see what happens to the med center when Jesus comes back. Now, before I say this, I love doctors and nurses. This is a godly calling to heal people as the hands and feet of Jesus, and I'm thankful for them. And I'm thankful that we live in a day where we have all of this stuff available to you. But, but one of the things, when, when I was early on in ministry, our church was in the Rice University area. And because of that, uh, we tended to have people coming through the church for short stints because they were here for treatment. And, and one of the things that I, I just can't do, 
I just, I just, I can't do it and then go back to whatever the day was, is to go through uh, Texas Children's Hospital. I, I just can't do it. Because I'm a dad, and, and I understand, at least at a glimpse, I can at least empathize. And go, what would that be like if that were my baby? And, and you know what? One of the things that amazes me is we won't need that place anymore. We won't need it. I'm thankful to people that serve there. I'm, we're blessed by them. But it'll be unnecessary. Leukemia will be no more. All of the effects of sin will be eradicated at Jesus' return. And this old way of life with weeping and sorrow, it'll be gone. It'll be gone. The story continues in Revelation 22, verse 3. And I want you to hear the city described. It says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Nothing marred by sin will enter into this place. Nothing affected by the curse of sin. Everything will be made new. And so here's when the angels over that Galilean countryside over 2,000 years ago, when they sang good news of great joy to all the people, for unto you this day in the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What, what they're singing about is a radical shift in all of history of Jesus coming to save us from the penalty of sin, to be at work saving us from the power of sin, and one day to save and rescue us from the very presence of of sin, that it's done. Now, now this is why we, we've got to back up for a moment, because God has given us these great promises, but we've got to begin to go, why is God doing this? Why does God go to such great lengths to save us? One of the things we need to be honest about is simply this, we needed to be rescued. We needed to be rescued. And what I mean with that is that we could do absolutely nothing to affect our own rescue. We were entirely incapable and incompetent of doing one thing to right the situation. It's as if we were there on the Titanic going down and we had a red Solo cup and we started bailing water. You can't do anything. Nothing. I want you to hear the way the Scriptures describe our situation prior to Christ and what Christ has done for us in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 1, it says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. We just stop there. If we were just trying to make the point that you couldn't do anything to save yourself, the statement, you were dead, is sufficient. I've never known dead men to do anything about their own deadness. Their incapacity to do anything is a fundamental element of them being dead. Dead men don't do anything except rot. So, what's he saying? You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So I'm going to stop there and say this was our situation outside of Jesus. 
is that we were dead in our sins and we were enslaved to them, just like everybody else. No one is immune to this. We all walked in this way. And yet, God has done something. And I want you to see in verse 4 how everything changes. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So when you think about this, he says, here's the story. You were absolutely dead. You couldn't do anything. You were enslaved, mind, body, in every way to sin and its desires. Just like everybody else. And God looked upon you in your rebellious state and He loved you. And He loved you with this great love that led Him to send His only Son in humility, in the form of a baby, to grow up as a member of the working poor, to be mistreated, doubted, disbelieved, beaten, and murdered. And He rose Him from the dead to save you. He didn't do anything. He says, you were dead, and He made you alive. The old Puritans used to say, the only thing that we brought into the salvation experience was the sin for which we needed to be redeemed. And we were dead, and He made us alive. We didn't do anything. We couldn't do anything. That's why we needed to be rescued. Look, if we just needed to be taught, God would have sent us a coach. If we just needed to be encouraged, He might have sent a cheerleader. If we just needed a guide, He might have sent us a map. But what what did He do? He sent us a Savior because we needed to be rescued. We could do nothing to redeem ourselves. And so we stood absolutely in need. And God responded to our needs, sending a Savior. And here's the beautiful news, is that God has promised to save us completely. If we have trusted in Jesus, His death for our sins, His resurrection for our eternal life, the promise is this, is that I'm going to finish what I've started. And so we have been saved from the penalty of sin. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, all the sins have been washed away. Not because you paid for them, but because Jesus did on your behalf. He took the punishment for you so that God could declare you not guilty. He did that. And by His Spirit, He's at work Saving us from the power of sin. Writing His law on our hearts. Changing the way that we view the world. Giving us a desire to walk in godliness that is greater than the desires of sin. And one day at His return, He will save us from the very presence of sin. Jesus is going to do this. And so when we celebrate the coming of a Savior, we're celebrating this amazing work that God is going to do, past, present, and future. That in the past, He has saved us. In the present, He is saving us. And in the future, He will save us. This is one of the reasons I love what we do at Communion. When we celebrate this together, we look back, right? Jesus says that you should do this in remembrance of Him. And so we have this command for the present about what we ought to do so that we remember. But it looks backwards to a moment in time when God proved His love for us. A moment in time that's unequivocal evidence that God cares for us when He sent His only Son to die in our place. And it points to the future. 
I want you to see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Apostle Paul says in verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, would give him thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I want you to see that. that we're, we're looking backwards in remembrance, but we're celebrating in the moment so that we can walk faithfully with him today. And we're looking to the future because we're doing this until he comes. That God's going to complete what he started. And this is the reminder of it. That Jesus proved to us that God is not only willing to save us when he died for our sins, but that he is able to save us when he raised him from the dead. And we celebrate this remembering what God has done. Celebrating it in the moment. Looking forward to the completion of what he has started. We have great reason for hope this morning. If you'll be helping serve the elements this morning, would you come forward? If you're a guest with us, we, we want to give you some brief instruction. We're not overly concerned with the logistics and getting it exactly right. Here's what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to receive the bread and then the cup, and we just want you to take them. And we want you to have time to pray. The scriptures say that one should examine their hearts before partaking. And so we want to give you a moment to do that. Take time and pray. If you're here with your family, I'll say this. This is a great opportunity to teach them about the gospel. Don't feel that you need to rush. Well, the band will play some instrumentally. Then we'll, we'll sing. And when you're ready, you just partake. We're, we're far less concerned with it happening the right way logistically and far more concerned with it happening the right way spiritually. And so take your time. And don't be concerned about what everyone else is doing at this moment. This is an opportunity for you to seek the Lord, to experience the joy of your salvation again as you're reminded of God's goodness, to repent and confess and to be encouraged by His Spirit. So take a moment to do that. Let us pray together. Father God, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You that the work of salvation is expansive, that it covers our past and present and future and that you have proven that you're trustworthy and that we can place our hope in you by what you have done in the past and what we see you doing today. And so, Lord, I pray that this time of remembrance would be a moment of renewal. That you'd strengthen us by your spirit. Lord, I pray that those who have come here today not knowing if they have a relationship to you, that right now by your Spirit you'd open their eyes to see the beauty of what you've done for them in sending your Son to pay for their sin, and rising them again to give them the hope of eternal life with you, and sending your Spirit to indwell and strengthen and guide them. I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, we praise your name this Christmas season. We thank you for your Son who has saved us who is saving us, who will save us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.